The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. As this celebration concludes, I would like to take note of some differences in this community that has resulted in ill feelings and even violent acts. It has been said that we shut our eyes to what is going on in the world. Well, tonight I've planned a little surprise to demonstrate we are greatly concerned by the trouble in Germany. You've all read how the Nazis have been burning our American books. This is an action that should not go unprotested. Now, everybody knows Buck Vernon there can find you anything you're looking for. It's most appropriate that he found for me a real piece of junk. Mein Kampf. I propose that tonight we have a symbolic book burning of our own. You stop that right now. Uh, hold on, on you right young fuck. I, I didn't want to go this it. far. I didn't mean to go this far. Oh, boy, calm down. Get your hand off me. This is my fault. I started this whole thing with my newspaper. I know that. But you misunderstood me. I was trying to show you what people are capable of out of ignorance and out of fear and out of hatred. Do you realize that this kind of thing is happening all over Germany? All over Germany. And right now, Germany and Walton's Mountain are not very far apart in my mind. I read that a foreign tyrant was publishing his plans to take over the world and was carrying out those plans. I thought you ought to have the opportunity to know about it. Just like I'd take the opportunity to tell you if there was a, a blight that was threatening your crops or some kind of scandal that was threatening your government. I mean, that's freedom as far as I can see it. And if you choose not to know about it, that's freedom too. But if you take a book and if you burn this book, then you can't know about it. And you had your freedom taken away from you. Do you understand me? Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, July 6, 2023. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Democracy and freedom of speech go hand in hand, but apparently they have nothing to do with each other when it comes to the left's interpretation of either democracy or of freedom of speech. In fact, the left has no definition of free speech at all, but has a million definitions of the kinds of speech that should never be free, especially hate speech. And that's why I hate the left. For the left, Democracy, quote-unquote, is all about being demo-crazy, as we shall discover right after our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform and visit us at justrightmedia.org where you can access all of our social media links, archive broadcasts, and the support button that makes it easy for you to support the show because, as always, your financial support is appreciated and is what makes this show possible. Canada, priding itself on its concerns for democracy, is of course constantly in the process of demonstrating that concern with a series of acts and regulations to stifle and control free speech. And one of the latest developments in that democratic effort has been the passage of Bill C-18, the Online News Act. 
We'll be sharing a detailed discussion of that act and its implications in a few minutes, but I first wanted to share these introductory observations as I discovered them on my own in print copies of the National Post on June 29 and 30. Both articles were written by Anya Karadaglia, if my pronunciation is correct, and under the headline, Google set to block news as talks end, I quote, Ottawa, Google will pull news from Google Search and other products in Canada over legislation that would force it to share revenues with news publishers, the company announced Thursday. Only Canadian news will be blocked, so Canadian users will still be able to see content from Fox News or BBC, for example. The Online News Act received royal assent earlier this month. It would force Meta and Google to reach commercial deals with news publishers to share revenues for news stories that appear on their platforms. Post Media, publisher of the National Post, is in favor of the legislation. The Parliamentary Budget Officer has estimated that under the law which is aimed at the two companies, Google and Facebook, could end up funding more than 30% of newsroom costs, just under $330 million a year. But if Google and Meta remove news from their platforms, they will no longer be covered under the Online News Act. Canada's legislation was modeled on Australia's, where both Meta and Google actually remain exempt from the news bargaining code, which has never kicked in because the companies reached revenue-sharing deals with publishers. Bill C-18 is premised on a similar idea, end quote. And under a separate headline, Trudeau criticizes Meta for walking away from news content negotiations, I quote the following... Speaking to reporters Wednesday, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said Meta's decision to walk away rather than engage constructively is disappointing. He also said it was extremely disappointing to see that Facebook continues to refuse to accept its responsibility towards our democracies by refusing to pay the fair share for Canadians to get local news and independent, rigorous journalistic content, end quote. Wow, what a scumbag. Constructive engagement is not possible when that engagement is forced and coerced. Far be it for me to be defending the likes of Facebook given its own corrupt practices, but in this context, on principle, I have no other choice. What Trudeau is calling a fair share of wealth, not created by the Canadian media, amounts to out-and-out extortion in the name of crony politics, where the government forces, and forces the operative word here, other interests to cough over some arbitrary fair share of the wealth they created to the crony fake media friends and co-conspirators of the government. It's absolutely appalling. I recall when I broadcast my first ever solo commentary, and that was on CFPL FM radio in London way back in the late 70s, and I recall quoting the Liberal Party's constant slogan that sharing is the great Canadian tradition. This was always how communists and fascists appealed to altruism to justify a form of sharing, quote-unquote, that would otherwise be morally judged to be a crime of theft. Robbing Peter to pay Paul is always the fundamental principle behind the government's Ponzi-sharing schemes, doesn't matter what they are. But the real kicker was Trudeau's virtue signaling about how Facebook continues to refuse to accept its responsibility towards our democracies, notably mentioned in the plural since in his mind, Canada does not exist as a nation or a democracy distinct from other nations. 
Now this is ironic, especially when his action is hypocritically based on Canada's national identity when it comes to enforcing what he calls Canadian content. If there's no Canadian culture, as he's been insisting for the past I don't know how many years, how can you force Canadian content? What, what the hell is that? But the question that really begs asking is just how does extorting money from one party to give it to another possibly have anything to do with democracy, whether defined as a free society or simply as majority rule? I mean, that's a non sequitur. Trudeau says this theft is for Canadians to get local news and independent, rigorous journalistic content. Wow, but if there's one thing that the government-funded media is not, it's independent. And the so-called journalistic content that Trudeau wants to subsidize with private money is his own propaganda of lies and misinformation. And of course, according to the Trudeau government, another responsibility towards our democracies involved going to war with Russia and hopefully murdering millions of people in the process. Coming up next, both from June 27th online postings on this side of the bumper, here's Tucker Carlson to expand on the democracy justifications that the left considers worth fighting for, while on the return side, more on Canada's Bill C-18 with redacted Clayton Morris. Hey, it's Tucker Carlson. You may have found yourself wondering recently as the world slides closer to nuclear annihilation than any time in human history, why exactly are we at war with Russia? It seems like there's a pretty significant downside to this particular foreign policy decision, starting with economic collapse and ending potentially with extinction. So is there a good reason we're doing it? So many innocent young people have been killed. So many hundreds of billions of dollars have been wasted, some of them from the U.S. Treasury. So what's the point? Are we really doing this so the Biden family can repay its debts to the oligarchs who finance their beach house in Rehoboth? Are we doing it so our government can continue to lie about its illicit bio labs in Eastern Europe? So that flabby losers like Toria Newland and Tony Blinken can feel like they're doing something important with their sad, empty lives? Really? Honestly, there's got to be a better reason for waging this the most pointless war of all. What is it? Well, thankfully, we have an answer. The war against Russia, ladies and gentlemen, the war against Putin and for Ukraine is in fact a war for democracy. Watch and recall the motive. The president has said many times we are focused on what we can do to support Ukraine's effort uh, to fight for their democracy. Democracy must prevail. The Ukrainian people are fighting the fight for their democracy and in doing so for ours as well. Assisting and helping Ukraine win this fight for democracy and freedom. And of course, Ukrainian President Zelensky understand that what's at stake in Ukraine is bigger than just his nation. It is literally a battle for freedom and democracy themselves. They are showing the world what an existential fight for democracy looks like. President Zelensky and the Ukrainians have changed the course of history for the better. And we unequivocally are with the Ukrainian people in their fight to remain a sovereign democracy. Unequivocally with the Ukrainian people to remain a democracy. It's a bipartisan view. Democracy must prevail. You just heard noted democracy expert Nancy Pelosi say the daughter of the mobbed-up mayor of Baltimore. As Pelosi puts it, the Ukrainian people are fighting the fight for their democracy and for ours as well. That's right, for ours as well. Without Ukrainian democracy, in other words, we can have no democracy here. If the Ukrainians aren't free, neither are we. We must make sure they can vote in Kiev so we can continue to vote in Kansas City. It's really that simple. And yet tonight, we regret to tell you that we have a problem. 
it looks like they're not going to be able to vote in Kiev anymore. And no, for once, it's not Putin's fault. Democracy in Ukraine seems to be suspended by the world's foremost democracy advocate himself, Field Marshal Zelensky. So when you have an election, well, he says, if we win, we'll let people vote. Otherwise, no, you vote when we feel like it, because ultimately we're completely in charge and make all the rules. Your job is to obey or be punished. That's our version of self-government. Self means me. I'm the government. Now, that's not just any autocrat. That's our chief ally in the war for democracy. This is the guy who just announced he's likely to cancel next year's elections. So you've got to wonder what the Biden administration thinks of this. We can't possibly continue to support Zelensky, that guy, after he said that, can we? Oh, of course we can. And we will. Here's Joe Biden from yesterday reaffirming America's unequivocal support for Ukraine. No matter what happened in Russia, we, the United States, would continue to support Ukraine's defense and its sovereignty and its territorial integrity. So to recap, we are currently fighting a war for democracy on behalf of a leader who just casually announced he's happy to end democracy and our democracy supporting leaders have no problem with that. In fact, they're strongly for it. Shocked? You shouldn't be. Of course they're for it. You should have seen this coming. Wars for democracy always cancel democracy in the process. That's why our leaders love them. And they all do it, even the virtuous leaders. Abraham Lincoln suspended habeas corpus. The British government under Winston Churchill threw an entire opposition party into prison and let them rot for the duration, in some cases with their families. So in a war for democracy, you can do anything. <laughs> Imagine what a man might do who has fewer principles. If that man, say, ran Ukraine, he might seize churches, arrest priests, ban all criticism of himself, disappear his political opponents. And that's happening. Just last month, Zelensky threw a man called Gonzalo Lira into prison indefinitely for the crime of daring to write about the Ukrainian government in unflattering ways. Now, what's interesting, what separates this from other such cases, is that Lira is an American citizen. So Joe Biden, who is quite a bit of SWAT, as they say in Ukraine, could have freed Gonzalo Lira within hours. But he didn't. He didn't want to. He didn't say a word about it. He remains in prison tonight. So that makes you wonder, what's the real motive here? When normal people see war, they see death and destruction, sadness and suffering. But that's not what demagogues see. They understand it differently. They know that war means power, mostly for them. During wartime, everything they do can be justified. War is the gravest of all emergencies. Imagine the COVID lockdowns times a thousand plus drones. Once war breaks out, politicians become gods with the power of life and death. So in a peaceful democracy, you have to debate your political opponents in public, and that's tiresome. But in a war for democracy, you can just throw them in jail or have them executed. You can see that many in Washington are looking forward to that moment. And that may be why they so fervently support Joe Biden, even many Republicans, against a potential opponent, the only opponent who opposes the war in Ukraine. If you were to end the war, their power would evaporate. Tracking uh, Justin Trudeau's tyranny is a full-time job. Luckily, we have a man who makes it his full-time job to track Trudeau's tyranny. David Creighton from Human Events writes over at Post Millennial from time to time. Journalist joins us now. David, good to see you. Welcome back to the show. 
Very nice to be back, Clayton. So we wanted to have you on because on Thursday night, the Trudeau government passed their latest bill. And it's, of course, a bill that we've been watching that passed Thursday night. Can you walk us through what the bill was or is and what this will mean for free speech in Canada? Well, it's a, there's, what's going on right now is a threefold attack on basic freedom of speech in Canada. What happened last Thursday was the passage of Bill C-18, which is, which is aimed at big tech, as the liberals like to say, but it's really about the Internet Extortion Act, is what I call it. It's going to force social media to pay Canadian news outlets to run Canadian stories on social media. Now, Meta has already come out and said, no way, you know, we're going, we're, we're going to stop running Canadian stories. So it's, a, it's technically called the Online News Bill. Uh, now now the, the Online News Act. And all of these bills have innocuous sounding names. But they're, what they are all about is just stripping Canada of free speech. And prior to C-18 passing, the Online Streaming Act, which was Bill C-11 passed. And that demanded that all independent news providers or news providers in general have Canadian content regulations. So that's going to hit a lot of YouTubers out there who are not going to have enough Canadian content to stay on the air. And this goes back to, a, to an obsession with, with, with the Liberal Party that goes back decades with this, this obsession with Canadian content at the detriment of free speech. I just don't understand why they would think that Facebook and Twitter would pay the CBC for their news content or, or I guess or even independent creators for their news content. They don't have to do that. I mean, you're getting to use their platform ostensibly for free. Why would they care? And you're right. I think this is going to lead to an isolation. Although, of course, it seems like these lawmakers are saying, no, no, this is going to help Canadian media. This is going to help Canadian media. What's their rationale for that? Well, it's strictly the argument that they're going to get a few dollars from from social media. This is this appealed initially to a lot of the legacy media in Canada. What's left of it, and it's it's astounding if you look at what is actually left of the legacy media. Ninety nine percent of the daily newspapers in this country are owned by Post Media, and Post Media said, "What a great idea!" Because Post Media is going downhill fast; it's going bankrupt. And they thought, what a nice way to pick up a few dollars. It's not going to be enough dollars to stay in business. They have got to refocus and repackage what they're doing. New media is the, is the future. And, of course, new media, I hesitate to say they're, they're all small-c conservative, but I say they're small-c common-sense outlets right. where they actually have a plan to exist in the modern world. Legacy media is still very much living in the 1970s and 80s before the Internet essentially took over media as we know it. And they refused to adapt. They refused to evolve. They refused to become a part of how media works today. But, but I tell you, the worst is yet to come 
And the, the third part of Trudeau's, what he, call, what he calls his online agenda, and that's exactly what it is. It's an online agenda, but it's also an attack on free speech. And that's the Online Safety Act. Now, that sounds just wonderful. What could be worse than safety? Right. <laughs> but that, of course, is what's coming next. And that is going to be Trudeau's attack on hate speech and misinformation slash disinformation. That's the next part of this. That's the scariest part. He is going to make that essentially illegal or subject to massive fines. And it's frightening because the question is, who defines what hate speech is and who defines what disinformation is? Well, I'll tell you, it's going to be the, the Trudeau government or it's going to be the liberal government who, who makes that, that call. And anything that they disagree with is going to be hate speech. You heard how Trudeau talked about the Freedom Convoy, racist, misogynist, hate speakers. Right. They would be banned. And I've looked through the coming legislation because for the last year, the Liberal government has been, has been doing uh, study groups in terms of how this legislation is going to be introduced and what it's going to entail. It will come up... For, for debate and vote in the next fall session. And what it really amounts to, though, is that Canada will be a country without free speech because hate speech can mean just about anything. But where, where do you begin and where do you end with a stupid concept like this? I'll tell you where to begin and end with a stupid concept like hate speech. You begin by objectively defining it, meaning in terms of how it actually relates to reality. Hate speech is certainly a stupid concept, but it is more than that. It is an anti-concept, intentionally designed by those on the left to obliterate the legitimate concept of free speech. Hate speech is an anti-concept created by those who hate speech. It is yet another subtle projection of the leftist mind that would invent such a silly concept. It's the language of Marxism based on the epistemology of round squares and square circles, a complete train wreck. Love and hate are the two polarities of personal preference, wants or desires. And here's a catch-22 on that point. Both of them, that is love and hate, can be associated with either good or evil. It is very possible for a person to love what is evil, and to hate what is good. To love is to value, mused Ayn Rand. To hate is to disvalue the object or person of one's preference or not preference. That's all that hate is. But in a leftist epistemology where you can pretend that words are violence, which is exactly the opposite of what they are, then hate can be equated with violence, while love too can be equated with violence, especially if you love freedom of speech. And if you want an example of misinformation and disinformation, I cite the latest June 2023 Government of Canada propaganda pamphlet, which I receive with irritating regularity from London West MP Ariel Kayabaga, a politician I've already identified on a previous broadcast as being openly in favor of passing legislation based on race. And I quote from that pamphlet under the heading Climate Change Initiatives, quote, Right to a healthy environment. Every individual in Canada has a right to a healthy environment, a measure implemented through the Canadian Environmental Protection Act. Our government has implemented policies that will aid in providing these rights to Canadians and will continue to do so. 
price on pollution. A key piece of our approach to address climate change is putting a price on carbon pollution for our biggest polluters through the carbon tax. Pricing pollution will reduce emissions, foster green innovation, and help Canadian companies compete in the emerging clean global economy. In order to offset this cost for the average Canadian, we've created the Climate Action Incentive Benefit. The Government of Canada uses approximately 90% of fuel charge proceeds to directly support families through Climate Action Incentive payments delivered as a quarterly tax benefit. Through these payments, 8 of 10 Canadian families receive more money back than what they paid in for carbon taxes, with low-income Canadians benefiting the most. Additionally, households that choose to make changes, for example, through energy upgrades to their home or by choosing different ways or cleaner vehicles to get around, can come out even further ahead. By making choices that reduce their emissions, Canadians can avoid paying the price on pollution while still collecting the full climate action incentive payment, end quote. I cannot possibly find adequate words to express just how vile and evil every part of this propaganda is. It is a total obscenity. Every single word and sentence is demonstrably false, and I cannot believe that the government is still calling carbon dioxide carbon pollution, which it is not. Carbon dioxide is well known as the gas of life, and the planet needs more of it, not less. This propaganda is pollution, and it has a dire price attached to it. It creates anti-concepts by the dozen, for example, like a right to a healthy environment. There's no such thing, nor could there ever be. That's insanity. Rights pertain to action, not to things or to environments. When you have a right to something, it means you have a right to act. And to have a right to anything, including property, means to have a legal right to use physical force in the protection of that to which you have a right. Now, can you see why the government is tying the word right to the environment? So it can use force against human beings who are supposed to have rights. And that part about climate action incentive benefits is beyond obscene. In that paragraph, they expect us to believe that they're using 90% of the fuel charge that 100% of Canadians pay to support 8 out of 10 families injured by the fuel charge. The arithmetic just doesn't make sense because there isn't any. This is extortion and coercion, and nothing more. And what does an arbitrary fuel tax, admitted to be a wealth transfer scheme, have to do with protecting anyone's right to a healthy environment? And having just shared with you that singular piece of garbage propaganda from our liberal government, I can honestly conclude that I hate the liberal government, <laughs> because I hate evil. And apparently I'm not alone. Coming up next on the return side of the bumper, Mark Levin on June 25th speaking about America's Democrat Party and his recent book, The Democrat Party Hates America. But first here again is RFK Jr. as reported on by Alex Jones on June 30, each making the classic error of attempting to transcend the polarity of left and right, which is not metaphysically possible, but which is always being politically forced. Here we go. We need to come together as populists, transcend left and right, and be pro-human. Now, that's what Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is doing. He's on a national program, and uh, he gets asked, uh, what do you think of Trump saying that he thinks you're a populist and a common-sense guy? And he says, well, I not, not only you know, think that's good, I'm proud of it. 
because I've been able to unify people. Let's go to the clip of RFK Jr. Here it is. You say that you're a Democrat, um, but you're getting a lot of support from a, a lot of leading voices on the right, like Steve Bannon, Tucker Carlson, Alex Jones, former President Donald Trump. Many Democrats fear that you're a spoiler in the race, that you will damage President Biden in the primary and grease the skids for former President Trump to return to the Oval Office. This week, former President Trump said about you, Kennedy is smart and he's a common sense guy. What kind of man do you think Donald Trump is? Well, you know, here's what I'm not going to do in this race. I'm not going to attack other people personally. I don't think it's good for our country. And I think, you know, what I'm trying to do in this race is bring people together, is to try to bridge the divide between Americans. And so I'm proud that President Trump likes me, even though I don't agree with him on most of his issues. I'm, because I don't want to alienate people. I want to bring people together. I'm proud that all these people like me and that I have independent supporters and Democratic supporters. You know, every Democrat says, I want to end the polarization. But how do you do that without talking to people who don't agree with you? How do you do that without appealing to people? Without the per- My purpose is to find the issues, the values that we have in common, rather than, you know, focus on the issues and the personalities that keep us all apart. And and he's not going to save us, neither is Trump, but he's a lot better than the New World Order, ladies and gentlemen, and they hate his guts. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I spend my weekends and my nights and early mornings doing this getting these bags under my eyes. I don't sleep a lot. I just don't. Things worry me. Uh, Things concern me. My wife will tell you that. I have a pad next to my bed. I take notes about certain things that are going on in the country. I am a voracious reader of mostly history. Uh, I'm trying to figure out what's taking place, who's responsible for what. And we have to come to grips with something here. We, you and I. Uh, and that is, yes, American Marxism. But who's responsible for this? It doesn't just happen. Professors, yes. Ideologues, yes. Activists, yes. It's the Democrat Party. The Democrat Party has never accepted America from its birth to today. The Democrat Party was obviously in charge of the Confederacy. Jefferson Davis was a Democrat. Most of the generals were Democrats. After the Civil War, the Democrat Party formed a group called the Ku Klux Klan. One of their generals did. Ulysses S. Grant, a Republican president, sent the army down there to put down the Klan. was quite successful until the Democrats took the House, the next election cycle. And you couldn't get the support to do it again. Then we have a period of segregation all the way into Plessy versus Ferguson, where you have a private rail company in Louisiana that wants to allow blacks to ride with whites. And who said no? The Democrat Party. Separate but equal, the Democrat Party. Segregated schools, the Democrat Party. Jim Crow, literacy tests, poll taxes, the Democrat Party. And I could go on and on, but today the Democrat Party It's a very chameleon-like party, has sort of switched positions. Now it's a party of American Marxism. And it's doing grave damage to this country. So I thought it was time not just to call them out, as we do here all the time on Fox, 
but to do so in a way that is scholarly, substantive, and brutal. Because if we are going to save this country, and I truly mean it, the Democrat Party must not just be defeated, it must be obliterated. Is that provocative? No, they're provocative. And so the Democrat Party hates America because it's never embraced Americanism. Is it the pro-Constitution Party today? No. Bill of Rights? No. Private property rights? No. Individualism? No. They're for groupism. Capitalism? No, they hate capitalism. How about e pluribus unum? No, it's the opposite with them. They believe in critical race theory, promoting racism, enshrining racism. There used to be a party of women's rights. Now they hate women with transgenderism, destroying women's sports under Title IX, which was intended to support it as a civil rights matter. How about citizenry? They hate the citizenry. Joe Biden talks up foreigners even before they come into this country while he trashes at least half of the American citizens on a regular basis. Do they like separation of powers? No. Do they like the Supreme Court? Only when it does what they wanted to do. How about the, uh, the election process in this country? No, they want to destroy it. So what do they like about this country? Nothing. Just listen to what they say. America is unraveling. Our founding and history are under assault. Our families and faiths are being degraded. Individualism has been substituted for groupism. Colorblindness is now racist. Capitalism and prosperity are being devoured by economic socialism and climate change fanaticism. Classrooms have become indoctrination mills for racism, segregation, bigotry, and sexual perversion. And teachers' unions are hostile to parental involvement in critical decisions about the health and welfare of their children. In America, free speech and academic freedom are shrinking, and the police state is growing, as is monitoring and spying on citizens. The government is banning and regulating more and more household products, from incandescent light bulbs to dishwashers, while creating shortages and driving up costs of others. Crime is out of control in our streets, public transportation and schools, while police budgets are slashed and many prosecutors and judges coddle violent criminals. Our borders are wide open to millions of foreigners who seek entry into the country as drug and criminal cartels ship killer drugs into our country by the tons and brutalize migrants by using them as indentured servants and sex slaves. The Democrat Party is responsible for most of this and much more. It seeks to permanently control our governmental institutions, just as it dominates our cultural entities, from the media to academia and entertainment to science. It seeks to delegitimize and eviscerate the Constitution, including the Bill of Rights, the Electoral College, the Supreme Court, separation of powers, and so forth, which obstructs its ideological designs. It abuses the rule of law by targeting its political opponents for harassment, investigation, prosecution, and even imprisonment. On October 30, 2008, when Barack Obama shouted to a crowd that we are five days away from fundamentally transforming the United States of America, he wasn't kidding. The examples are too numerous to catalog here, but it is a party that is built on the demands and propaganda of revolutionaries, demagogues, and malcontents and has a horrifying history of supporting the most contemptible causes, including slavery, segregation, the Ku Klux Klan, and even lynchings. Indeed, almost from the start, the Democrat Party rejected principles and values of the American experiment. 
And today it is the home of another anti-American movement, American Marxism, with its various ideological appendages. But what if you do not want to fundamentally transform America and love our country? Then it is important to speak the truth about those who seek to impose their will on the rest of us. When dealing with such a dire threat to our freedom, society, and way of life, we cannot dodge our responsibilities as citizens. The time is late, and the cause is too important to self-censor. So let us step back and examine what is taking place in the central role of the Democrat Party. People want bipartisanship. They want to coexist. I hear it all the time from the Republican leadership in the Senate, from McConnell. I hear it from, from candidates like Chris Christie. I hear it from individuals like Chris Sununo and Asa Hutchison. In my humble opinion, they do not comprehend what's going on in this country, and they do not comprehend what we're up against. From our classrooms to our workplaces to the border, to our economic system, to our faith, to our families, they are all under assault. And they are all under assault as a result of the biggest political party in this country, the Democrat Party. It's time to call them what they are. The Democrat Party hates America. You are listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Now there is one guy who really understands the nature of the political polarity as it applies to reality. And somehow, I don't think that Mark Levin and RFK Jr. will be sharing any common ground on the Democrat Party. Once again, I find myself having to identify a critical political error made by many well-meaning and sincere individuals who want to quote-unquote transcend left and right, as Alex Jones put it, or who want bipartisanship and coexistence, as Mark Levin described it. JFK Jr. is very naive and is completely misguided, and the very notion of, quote, what I'm trying to do in this race is bring people together, end quote, is a bit hypocritical given what we just heard him say in that interview. I mean, right after we hear that Donald Trump says Kennedy is smart and is a common sense guy, when asked what he, JFK, thought about Trump, he avoided the question by replying, here's what I'm not going to do in this race, I'm not going to attack the other people personally. Who asked him to attack Donald Trump? He was asked to say something good about the guy. In other words, he just attacked Donald Trump. He couldn't even think of a single positive thing to say about Trump. At least something like, oh, I like the color of his shoes or tie or something like that. But no, here's Mr. I want to bring people together who won't even acknowledge one positive thing about Trump. But then he goes a step further. My purpose is to find the values that we have in common, rather than focus on the personalities that keep us apart. Hmm. So Kennedy thinks that it's personalities that are polarizing the nation. And obviously he's talking about Trump as being the divisive force in the nation when no other individual in American history has done more to rally people around his cause. Uniting people is not the goal to pursue in politics. It doesn't even make sense in terms of what such a unity might possibly result in. You cannot assume that all people share the same values or political goals. This is the nature of the distinction between left and right, between collectivism and individualism, two completely incompatible philosophies of government. And then there's the smoking gun, 
Quote, every Democrat says, I want to end the polarization, but how do you do that without talking to the people who don't agree with you, end quote. Well, why do you think the Democrats, of all people, the polarity of the left, why do they want to end polarization? Because to the left, polarization means disagreement, and what they want to end is disagreement, and the right to disagree along with it. And how do you come to any common ground with people who don't agree with you on principle, let alone over pragmatic issues? And you cannot have a conversation with anyone on the left because they're incapable of carrying on a conversation. This has to be understood. Ayn Rand's very first essay in her very first edition of the Ayn Rand Newsletter, Volume 1, Number 1, October 11, 1971, was titled, Credibility and Polarization. And I've read much of that essay on past broadcasts of the show, but the basic theme of it was about the destruction of language and therefore of thought. She then introduced the technique of using anti-concepts to give people a sense of only approximate understanding of things. Quote, one of today's fashionable anti-concepts is polarization. Its meaning is not clear except that it's something bad, something that would split the country into irreconcilable camps. It replaces a discussion of the merits, the truth or falsehood, of a given idea with menacing accusations that the idea would polarize the country. When used as a pejorative, this means that men should not differ in their views, ideas, goals, and values. That such differences are evil, that men must not disagree, end quote. And that's the bottom line for the left. That's what it's all about. That's all they care about is shutting you up. In the same way that the left views language as violence, so too the left views disagreement as violence. And there's a reason for this. The left is incapable of defending the values of the left without the use of violence. This is the fundamental characteristic of being on the left. That's what it's all about. The word consent is not in their vocabulary unless they apply it to those who have not yet reached the age of consent when they want to kill and mutilate themselves with sex transitions and deadly injections. They're doing this to kids. There are no words available to express the values of the left without exposing the fact that the left is a death cult committed to nihilism and total destruction. Marxism to the core. So, if those are the people that JFK wants to unite with, count me out. To the left, all problems are solved by the use of the government gun. And as Rand warned, in any compromise between good and evil, it is always the evil side that wins. Which leads us to our final round. Greg Reese of InfoWars produced two separate commentaries heading into the American July 4th holiday weekend. And once again, we find the reality of political polarity being either avoided or misunderstood and presented out of context. Here we go again. After seven years of violent revolution, our American founders were well aware that political factions were most often used to divide and conquer the people. And they knew that the republic they created would only last as long as the people could remain educated. In 1816, Thomas Jefferson wrote, If a nation expects to be ignorant and free in a state of civilization, it expects what never was and never will be. By the end of the Civil War, the two-party system became the norm. The globalist system we face today was born. 
and the deliberate dumbing down of the American citizen began with our great-great-grandparents. In the late 1800s, the Skinner-Pavlovian method was brought into American schools by Johns Hopkins. These psychological methods allowed teachers the ability to program students' behavior in the same way that Pavlov did with dogs. In 1934, the Carnegie International Endowment for Peace published the Report on the Commission on Social Studies, which explicitly stated the goal of eventually taking away people's land and noted that most people would obviously oppose this. The solution was to begin using the school system to recondition the minds of children. In 1976, the bicentennial year of the Declaration of Independence, 124 congressmen signed the Declaration of Interdependence, which stated that two centuries ago, our forefathers brought forth a new nation. Now we must join with others to bring forth a new world order. And it pledged to give children special attention in distributing a common education to suit their goals. By the 1990s, this globalist dumbing down system was perfected and America began exporting it worldwide in what is known as outcome-based education. Starting in 2010, Common Core began in the United States. It outlined what students were expected to know at each grade level and enforced ways to assess those standards. Charlotte Iserby, author of The Deliberate Dumbing Down of America, has traced most of this agenda stemming from the Order of Skull and Bones at Yale through both Republicans and Democrats, two wings of the same globalist bird, which understood that dumbed-down people have a base desire for a simple dualistic choice. In 1953, the Rockefeller Foundation funded the Robber's Cave Experiment, wherein 11-year-old boys who thought they were signing up for summer camp were organized into two separate tribes and were manipulated into fighting each other, which was easily accomplished by having a single resource that the two groups competed for. The Henry Tajfel experiments of the 1970s showed that by simply dividing people into two groups, they would naturally identify with their own group and discriminate against the other. The basic ego mind is constantly making preferences. No matter how dumb you are, you have an opinion about everything. And if you can keep the population dumb enough and give them two parties to choose from, they will innately identify with one and despise the other. This allows the globalist system the cover they need to implement unpopular policies such as a central bank digital currency, while we, the people, ignorantly fight each other. United we stand, divided we fall, and we've been falling for it for generations. The American people have been so thoroughly dumbed down that we think freedom is the ability to choose between two parties working for the same control system. And we have been made so weak that we are afraid to even discuss the option of violence which is most often the only remedy for tyranny. But if we were an enlightened people, we could simply unite together as one and just say no to the tyrants. The answer to 1984 is 1776. 
The Declaration of Independence states that every person possesses three inalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. 247 years have passed, and we have mostly forgotten what those words mean. Today, it seems that most of us think that the pursuit of happiness means the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain and distress. This confusion can best be explained by the dumbing down of America, which we covered in our last video, and the gross lack of spiritual enlightenment in today's society. In modern society, the childish atheist will often ask, if there is a God, why do bad things happen to good people? As if the earth is supposed to be a utopia where humans are born to experience nothing but pleasure. Like all utopian ideations, this is a fantasy for the weak-minded who seek to avoid the pain of life. Bad things happen to everyone so that we can overcome them, learn, and grow. The earth is nothing at all like a utopia. It is a wild place where one must kill in order to live. It does not matter if one is carnivore, vegetarian, or vegan. And it does not matter if you pay someone else to kill for you. Life can only be sustained by life. And perhaps this is why civilization was created which many will argue. But more often than not, civilizations have served the tyrants at the top while enslaving the people to run whatever system has been put into place. But on July 4th of 1776, our founding fathers drafted something very unique, perhaps the most revolutionary form of spiritual self-government which has ever been penned to paper. They understood what the pursuit of happiness meant. To Thomas Jefferson, it meant the pursuit of a meaningful life, and it was preceded on the list by life and liberty because individual freedom is needed in order to choose your own path in life. If God has a purpose for each and every one of us, then we have the right to live our life freely so that we can pursue our own life's work. The American Revolution created a form of government that serves to protect and defend the individual's right to pursue their very own path so long as they respected the rights of others. It established a form of government whose sole purpose was to protect these unalienable rights that each individual human deserves. But this is obviously not the case anymore. The government today is serving the interests of what we could refer to as the New World Order, a worldwide police state to manage a belligerent population of undisciplined slaves. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are ethical goals, and the problem today is that the American people are no longer an ethical people. Most of us are chasing pleasure in whatever form we can find it in, whether it be drugs, alcohol, food, sex, or just something to buy that will make us feel good for a fleeting moment. While the New World Order definitely had a hand in all this, it is ultimately our own fault. They wanted to turn humanity into an ignorant slave class. So they laid out the bait in the form of social welfare, easy money, and easy access to all sorts of vice. And while some took the bait, those that didn't aren't really doing anything to help our fallen brothers and sisters. Those of us working towards a meaningful life are mostly out for themselves and see the rest as part of the problem. And this has likely been a human struggle throughout all of history. It has often been said that this life is a spiritual battle. And it most certainly is. The majority of the so-called left are not the enemy. They are our neighbors who, through trauma or ignorance, 
have come to believe the lies of the mainstream media propaganda machine, and they have been weaponized against American patriots by the New World Order. They are the fallen ones. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. If we expect a corrupt government to fix itself while we fight our fallen neighbors, then do we really deserve life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Reporting for InfoWars, this is Greg Reese. Well, that's a loaded question, and it's kind of presented as a false polarity. The pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain and distress, or life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Why does it always have to be one or the other? Why can't it be both? Personally, I see nothing intrinsically wrong with avoiding pain and distress, or enjoying the pleasure of food or sex or shopping. And despite these inclinations, I've spent the better part of my entire life suffering the discomfort of participating in the political arena, which the vast majority of people never do, even those who are in pursuit of a meaningful life. Most people are not only not interested in politics, they aren't even aware of politics. The problem is politics is always interested in them especially those who remain ignorant of the political process or the principle behind it because they're the ones that are the easiest to manipulate. One of the first principles I learned in political persuasion is that you cannot ever convert anyone from one political polarity to the other. That is strictly a process of self-realization. You may be able to lead the horse to the proverbial water, but you can't force him to drink it. The average human being is born on the left. To be on the political right involves a process of maturity that many on the left never undertake. They don't even know it's there to undertake. It's also a reason for raising the voting age rather than lowering it, as the left is always wanting to do. You know, I was in a leftist frame of mind until my late 20s. And I was forced into a process of political self-realization when I was first exposed to the writings of Ayn Rand. Here was a person who could clearly explain things in one or two pages that would take all of my teachers of the past forever to explain and never arrive at a conclusion or a point made. The state is a gun. Government is the trigger. When we speak of government, what we are always governing is the use of physical force. How are you going to use force in society? And determining the proper moral grounds on which to justify the use of physical force. And when it comes to property, property is a form of force. People don't think about it that way. It's the enabling right. The right to property means that you have the right to use physical force to defend that property from being confiscated by others. And that includes your life and your liberty as well. Now, the fact that Greg Reese correctly recognized that Republicans and Democrats 
are two wings of the same globalist bird, and that they understood that dumbed-down people have a simple desire for a dualistic choice, uh, it makes it all the more curious that he didn't follow through with that observation to conclude that there is no dualistic choice, there's just a single option presented as socialism or more socialism. Where's the dual choice? You're talking about the same globalist bird. That's a singularity. <laughs> Never mind dualistic choices. In politics, all choices boil down to a single option, the candidate or party that the voter votes for. And if the voter doesn't like the same globalist bird that is occupying all of the spots on the ballot, then he or she can refuse to vote for any of them. This is not throwing your vote away, but exercising it responsibly. And don't fall for that BS argument that if you didn't vote, you don't have a right to complain. Because the reality is the opposite. If you did vote and got what you voted for, you're the one who has no right to complain. Having a right, by the way, to any action also means having the right not to take the action and knowing when not to do so. You should never support your enemy by just voting for them because you can vote against the other guy. And... Intrinsically, basically, a two-party system does not divide people. It identifies the already existing division and polarity and aligns those differences along party lines, at least in principle. The problem with the two predominant parties in both the United States and in Canada is that both of the parties are on the left, leaving the right side of the polarity vacant. And because polarity is a natural fact of life from sexuality to politics, people naturally assume that when presented with two options pretending to be the opposite of each other, that that's exactly what they are. Why else would they think otherwise? It continues to amuse me to this day to watch people come to the inevitable realization that when they actually take a closer look, that liberals, conservatives, republicans, democrats are all the same, all on the left, preaching socialism and world governments. So if you want to unite people, and if you want to bring freedom back to your society, there's only one way to approach that goal, and you must do so without any expectations of success, because the success will never manifest itself in a way that you'll be able to see or recognize it when and if it happens. And what's the secret? Always make sure that you adhere to the truth which is exactly what we plan to do again when you join us next week as we continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. See you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Tim, you can't sanction absurdities like one-eyed Venusians and fishmouth Martians. Look at me, Tim. Do I have a fish mouth? Well, I have a hook in the closet. Let's try it and see what happens. Tim, I may get you the Pulitzer Prize. You know, I was with Joe Pulitzer the day he decided to give out the prizes. As a matter of fact, uh, I was the one who suggested it. Tim, where is your courage? Where is your strong heart? I remember when I was with Pasteur when he was bugged with his microbes. And Georgie Washington, when we crossed the Delaware, believe me, it was cold. My antennas froze. Look, if I can't convince Trimble that he said That's it, you have it. Convince Trimble. Oh, sure. Just walk into his office. What? Convince Mr. Trimble. You're a bright boy, Tim. You've got the facts. You've got the truth. Never let anyone take that away from you, Tim. The truth. 
That's all any of us ever really have.